From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. And I'm Tracy McRae. Eating gluten-free is all the rage, but is it a good idea? Avoiding gluten isn't necessary for most people, but for those with celiac disease, avoiding gluten is essential to controlling the condition. On today's program, we'll talk gluten and celiac disease with a Mayo Clinic expert. A third of the white population have the genes for celiac disease, so then we're faced with a gluten challenge, which means putting them back on wheat and gluten-containing foods for several weeks to see if the symptoms come back, do the blood test become positive, and does the intestine become damaged. Also on the program, we'll discuss an early stage of breast cancer, ductal carcinoma in situ, and eating smart during the holidays. All that along with a health minute from Vivian Williams right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Celiac disease. It's an immune reaction to eating gluten, which is a protein found in wheat, barley, and rye. And interestingly, it affects more than 3 million people in the United States. Now, if you have it, eating gluten triggers this immune response or inflammation in your small intestine. And over time, that can cause problems trying to absorb some nutrients called malabsorption. Your body can't absorb the nutrients that it needs. And if it goes on long enough, it can cause some serious health problems. So what are the symptoms and how do you find out if you have it? Oh, and what's the treatment? And most importantly, if you don't have it, is it still a good idea to avoid gluten in your diet? Joining us in studio is a celiac disease expert. My favorite one, by the way, <laughs> Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist, Dr. Joe Murray. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. Dr. Murray, good to have you. We've got so many questions about celiac disease, but the first one I want to ask you is I was at a restaurant recently, and I was looking at the menu, and uh, many of the entrees had GF beside them. I assume that meant gluten-free. Why are people that don't have celiac disease, and I assume most people who go into a restaurant don't, why are they trying to avoid gluten? Well, some of that, I'm afraid, is fashion. It's the power of um, perhaps certain media figures or celebrities who've endorsed a gluten-free diet for reasons that aren't necessarily scientifically based. We know people with celiac disease need to avoid gluten. That's without question. However, people who don't have celiac disease, there really isn't a lot of good evidence to support people avoiding gluten for the good of their health, for example. And wasn't it a physician who started this gluten-free fad? Uh, Well, (laughs) there are probably more than one physician, actually. (laughs) And so there has been um, a a number of popular writers, let's say, um, who have written books that in the past several years that have purported to suggest that lots of things in your health will be improved by avoiding gluten. Unfortunately, those are not based on science or even based on solid facts. So what's happening? Because, you know, I'm sure all Mm -hmm. of us know people who say, I stopped eating gluten, I feel so much better. Um, Isn't it kind of it that it's a cross with you're not eating bread or carbohydrates that maybe upset your stomach? So wheat itself is quite a complicated, quite a complicated grain. It's got lots of different things. We know gluten is the protein within wheat and that triggers celiac disease. But there's also starches, there's fiber and other things that go along with wheat. And then you put that into foods like pizza, my favorite, um, you've got lots of other things in pizza that could upset you. There's also the fact that lots of fast food 
contains gluten. Avoiding gluten may make it harder to eat so much fast food, and eating fast food might not be good for you. So is there such a thing as non-celiac gluten sensitivity? In other words, are there some people who don't truly have celiac disease, but they're sensitive in some way to gluten? Yes. and I, So I think, Tom, yes, indeed there are. It's probably not as common, almost certainly not as common as the number of people who are avoiding gluten. But within those people who report, oh, I feel better when I avoid gluten, maybe some of them have celiac disease. And there are some who don't have celiac disease, but for some reason their body reacts to wheat. It's not clear that it's the gluten that's in the wheat. It could be some other component, one of the starch components of wheat, that could be the problem. So we call that just the sensitivity. Then you fall into that category? Yeah, you can use the term sensitivity or an intolerance um, to explain that. Unfortunately, there's no good test for it. Um, So I think it makes it comes down to... Good sense. One, I always tell people, be tested for celiac disease. If you don't feel well and you think it might be related to bread or wheat, for example, be tested for celiac disease first before you reduce gluten. Because there are a lot of people or a fair number of people who have celiac disease and don't know it. Is that correct? Yes, probably at least half of the patients out there who have celiac disease have no idea that they have it. So it would be beneficial to go and get tested, but you should not... I remember from you saying in the past, you should not alter your diet before you go get tested. Exactly right, Tracy. If somebody goes gluten-free or even gluten-reduced before the blood test, the blood test can be false, negative, and misleading. Is the blood test definitive? The blood test is not definitive. It can be a very good indicator. In somebody eating gluten, it's usually quite sensitive. It should pick up 95% of people with celiac disease, which is pretty darn good for mm-hmm. uh, for accurate for a, a, a blood test. Uh, it's not perfect. You can have false positives. So usually we recommend that somebody see a gastroenterologist and consider having an endoscopy so we can biopsy the part of the body, that's the small intestine, that is damaged in celiac disease. Endoscopy meaning you put a tube down the throat, yep. down into the small bowel yep. and get a, a biopsy, and that's confirmatory. Exactly, and we do that under sedation. Okay. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. But most of the time, you don't need to do that. The blood test, you're good enough. If the blood that. test is negative, usually you're good enough. You don't need to proceed to the endoscopy. But if the blood test is positive, mm-hmm. then it's suggestive but not diagnostic. And that's the circumstance that we feel that really the endoscopy is the most helpful, confirming the diagnosis. But don't most people say, well, my blood test is positive or is positive for celiac disease, and I'm just going to stop eating gluten and not have that endoscopy? Do you run into that or not? Yes, we do. And uh, sometimes I run into those patients six months or 12 months later where they don't necessarily feel better, and they're wondering, is this very very burdensome diet because it can be quite burdensome for some people is it worth it Um, and I'm stuck in the position that it's much harder then to make the diagnosis when they're already have been gluten-free for a few months all right let's talk about the symptoms it could be as you mentioned there's a lot of people out there who have celiac disease don't know it what what are they feeling so the most typical symptom is diarrhea abdominal bloating Gaseousness, especially flatulence that's quite malodorous, I mean stinky. Um, problems with fatigue is also quite common. We see consequences of malabsorption like anemia, for example, weight loss, bone disease can be issues. But all of that said, there are plenty of people out there who have celiac disease 
who don't have weight loss or diarrhea or anemia, they just don't feel well. And they especially don't feel well after meals, but they don't understand why. Well, because it sounds like it's almost a completely different disease when you look at those symptoms side by side. Um, True, uh, even though when we look at the blood tests or we look at the intestine, they're indistinguishable. Hmm. So uh, what actually happens inside the small intestine if you have celiac disease and uh, continue to eat gluten? Yeah, in the small intestine... We have these lining cells. We call them villi. They're little finger-like projections. They make it look like a deep pile carpet. And that's really the workhorse of digestion. We have all our enzymes for digestion, and we absorb our nutrients there. In celiac disease, those become inflamed and flattened. So we don't have that deep pile carpet anymore. It looks more like a mosaic tile uh, floor. And we don't have the ability to adjust. absorb certain nutrients like iron is especially one of the most common ones or if stuff passes right on through us without being digested we can have diarrhea so can you can those villi bounce back oh yes now i wouldn't use the term bounce (laughs) they grow back in children they can bounce back quickly within weeks in adults it takes months or sometimes even years for the villi to recover do we know what causes this is this always inherited or not necessarily we know that it's triggered by gluten. That's the protein in wheat, barley, and rye. We know people need to have certain genes, but those genes are very common, especially in Caucasians. About 30% of Caucasians carry those genes, but not 30% of the white population actually gets celiacs. It's more like 1%. So there's something else missing from that equation. Family history, I would say half of the patients have a family history. The other half don't have any. Is celiac disease increasing in frequency, or does it just seem like that because we're talking about it more? I think it's both. Um, We have data showing that it has truly increased in frequency, not only in the United States, but across the world. There has been a dramatic increase in the disease, not just that we're finding it. We do have better tools for finding it, but there is a lot more of it about. Why has that happened? Um, Wheat itself probably hasn't changed. It's essentially the same. Our wheat plants are a little shorter. They grow more seeds. But the actual wheat proteins probably have not changed very much. There certainly are changes in what we're eating. We are eating a lot more. I mentioned pizza earlier. We're eating a lot more pizza than we were. We're eating a lot more fast foods. A lot more baked goods are being eaten. Uh, Is that a, a clue? Perhaps there's... A little bit of of new data from Europe suggesting that very young children who are at risk for celiac disease, and we know this because of a family history, if they get more gluten in childhood, they're going to get more celiac disease. So there's something about dose in children at genetic risk that's important. You mentioned that about half of the cases are inherited. So if someone is diagnosed with celiac disease, should their family member, immediate family members be tested? Yes, and that applies to parents, siblings, and children. doesn't matter how old the patient or the relative is. I recommend that they be tested. All right, our guest and expert on celiac disease, Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Joseph Murray. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the complications of celiac disease if you don't stop eating gluten. And we'll talk about the treatment, which is relatively straightforward. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're with a celiac disease expert. Dr. Joseph Murray, we're talking about celiac disease. We've learned that we've talked about the symptoms. We've learned that you can diagnose it with a blood test, but a more definitive test is endoscopy. 50% of cases are inherited. Before we go on to treatment, other risk factors. Isn't it true that if you are a type 1 diabetic, you're also at increased risk? Yes, indeed, Tom. So people with type 1 diabetes have this autoimmune background that makes them more prone to other autoimmune diseases. So as many as 6 or 7% of people with type 1 diabetes will develop celiac disease in their lifetime. And that can be important. It, it could affect their ability to digest and absorb, which of course could affect their blood sugars, especially after meals. So that's one particular group at risk. And people with other autoimmune diseases lupus, for example, Sjogren's syndrome, these other autoimmune conditions, they're also more prone to celiac disease. Aside from feeling miserable, what are some of the complications that celiac disease bring on? So we've mentioned malabsorption, so things like anemia, osteoporosis or osteomalacia, osteomalacia being a softening of the bones, the osteoporosis, brittle bones. Those patients can get premature fractures, their increased risk of fractures. Um, There are also more serious problems, certain malignancies of lymphoma being one or cancer of the small intestine are more common in patients with celiac disease. And thankfully, they're still quite rare. But when they happen, they're devastating. But if you do get celiac disease or have celiac disease and avoid gluten, can you avoid the complications? Um, Generally, yes. So the risk for those complications is greatest within the first year or two after diagnosis. After that, once somebody's been gluten-free for two or more years, usually the risk of those complications recedes and drops to a level that's no more than the general population. So I guess you sort of answered the question about what the treatment is. Avoid gluten. So uh, what can you eat and what can't you eat? Well, of course you have to avoid gluten, and gluten being that protein that's present in wheat, uh, barley, and rye. And, of course, wheat is used in lots of other foodstuffs. So one has to be careful about things like sauces, marinades, seasonings, for example, can all be contaminated with wheat in some way. There can also be cross-contamination in kitchens, for example, where there's a lot of airborne flour. That flour is going to land on other things and cause cross-contamination of those other uh, other items. Gluten-free is now well-defined by the FDA, has a, has a set of threshold of less than 20 parts per million, can be labeled gluten-free. And if something is labeled, it's usually reliably gluten-free if it's packaged foods. Restaurants with a little GF symbol, not quite so certain. And a recent study suggested that as many as 30% of so-called gluten-free foods in restaurants might not be totally free of gluten. Now, does that mean they're always hazardous for celiac patients? Not necessarily. That's dangerous. Well, it's a concern at least. And patients with celiac disease live with this Mm -hmm. burden of care that they have to carry out every time they eat. It's kind of like when it comes to our diet, it's kind of like um, keto diets have taken on a new celebrity culture. Mm -hmm. And I think that gluten-free is the same thing. There's an actual diagnosis. There's people that struggle and live with it every day. There's people who need to have a real keto diet. Mm -hmm. But the terms kind of get thrown around and it's not harmful if you don't have gluten sensitivity. If you're not celiac, it's not harmful to eat more healthfully. 
So why is it a big deal to get this message out? Well, several fold. One, people who have symptoms need to have those analyzed. They need to know what's causing those symptoms. Is it celiac disease? Get tested before you avoid it. If it's not gluten or not celiac disease, it might be something else wrong with your gut. A gut that is damaged or injured will probably feel bad when you eat. It doesn't mean it's the problem with the food. It may be the problem with the gut. That's what your friendly gastroenterologist is for. (laughs) Um, The other issues, the issue of avoiding gluten without a diagnosis, there may be issues because when you go gluten-free, you avoid a lot of fiber, so you're Mm -hmm. going to get fiber deficient. A lot of cereals are fortified with thiamine and other nutrients, those are necessary, certainly necessary in biology. They're quite important for reproduction, for example. We don't want people deficient in those. And there also may be other things that certain foods that are naturally gluten-free may perhaps have more contamination with things like heavy metals, like arsenic. So certain say rice sources have more arsenic and there's been issues about accumulation of heavy metals in people who are eating a gluten-free diet even Mm. without the diagnosis so i don't think we should change our diet without a good reason for doing so is it important if you're diagnosed with celiac disease newly diagnosed that you see a dietitian yes i mean central to this is to learning how you're going to do this. This is not a casual endeavor of playing at gluten-free. This is a completely different lifestyle and it's medically mandated and a dietitian, an expert dietitian is crucial to doing that successfully. The people who have diagnosed, who have self-diagnosed, what should they do? Should they stop Go back to eating regularly, then come and see you to get tested? If it's been a very short time, like a week or two, go back eating gluten, go see their doctor. What if it's been a couple of years? If it's been a couple of years, that's a little more tricky. They should probably see their doctor anyway. We can do a type of genetic test that if it's negative, it rules out celiac disease. Uh But that's only if it's negative. And as I mentioned, a third of the white population have the genes for celiac disease. So in that third, we won't know. Then we're faced with a gluten challenge, which means putting them back on wheat and other uh, gluten-containing foods for several weeks to see if the symptoms come back, do the blood test become positive, and does the intestine become damaged. All right, the condition is called celiac disease. It affects at least 1% of the population, and there are a lot of people who have celiac disease and don't yet know it. Hopefully, they've listened to this program and will go in and get tested. There are two blood tests that can help diagnose it, and a strict, lifelong, gluten-free diet is the only effective way to manage it. Our thanks to Dr. Joseph Murray, Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist and celiac disease expert. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about DCIS, ductal carcinoma inside two of the breast. And tips for eating smart during the holidays. Up next, a health minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. A sore throat is a common symptom of an upper respiratory infection such as a cold or flu. It's also a symptom of a bacterial infection commonly referred to as strep throat. How can you tell if your child's sore throat is caused by a viral or bacterial infection? Mayo Clinic Family Medicine Specialist Dr. Tina Arden helps make that distinction. So if your child complains of an itchy sore throat that hurts when he or she swallows, most often it's a viral infection that will go away on its own. 
You can treat the symptoms, but there is no cure for a cold or flu virus. Antibiotics simply won't work for a viral infection, says Dr. Arden. Now, if your child complains of throat pain without coughing, it may be a sign of a different upper respiratory illness. Strep throat or strep pharyngitis, which is the medical term, is a specific bacterial infection that can happen in the back of the throat. Telltale signs include tiny red spots on the back of the roof of the mouth or red and swollen tonsils, sometimes with white patches. Dr. Arden says typically if, if it is strep throat, you're only going to have symptoms related to the back of the throat. Fever, maybe a headache, and then the sore throat. Your health care provider can perform lab tests to confirm if it's strep throat and offer antibiotics to treat the bacterial infection. Dr. Arden says if a child has other symptoms, such as a runny nose, sneezing, coughing, it's highly unlikely we're dealing with strep throat. Plenty of rest, warm, soothing liquids will help. And make sure your child has been immunized with the flu vaccine. Moving on to improving productivity at work. Research from the Well Living Lab, a Delos and Mayo Clinic collaboration, shows that windows at work can help improve workers' productivity. Dr. Brent Bauer, medical director for the Well Living Lab, says that people are wired to want windows to experience nature. He says a lot of it centers on what's called biophilia. Bio meaning life and philia meaning love. So we have a love for nature. His research shows office areas with windows which provide natural light and views of the outdoors improve workers' cognitive performance and satisfaction with their office environment. Dr. Bauer says how it actually works or what it actually does is a little harder to determine with 100% clarity. But people are happier and healthier when exposed to nature. It may help boost immune function and decrease stress. Dr. Bauer has two tips on how to work nature into your workspace. If you can move by a window, do it. If not, bring nature into your cubicle. He says bring a plant, a small water feature, or items made of wood or stone. Bring the outside in for better productivity and health. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. DCIS. It stands for ductal carcinoma in situ. It's when there are abnormal cells inside a milk duct in the breast. Now, DCIS is considered non-invasive, meaning that it hasn't spread outside the milk duct. And it's usually found on a mammogram that's done as part of breast cancer screening. But is it cancer? Does it turn into cancer and can it be watched? Watchful waiting. That's a tricky one to do. And what what are the treatment options? Joining us in studio is Mayo Clinic breast surgeon, Dr. Amy Degnam. Welcome to the program. Hello. I'm happy to be here with you. Thanks, Dr. Degnam. Um, It's a difficult subject and can be confusing for some women. So it's an acronym, DCIS. Tell us what those letters stand for. Right. So they stand for ductal carcinoma in situ, which means that these look like cancer cells, but they are not cancer cells that have the ability to spread outside of the milk ducts or invade anywhere else in the body. So therefore, they are not invasive cancer cells. So is that what in situ means? Correct. What, what, that it, it's just localized, in Correct. other words. Okay. But carcinoma means cancer. Yes. And it's in a milk duct. Correct. So there has been debate about the semantics of whether DCIS should be called cancer Mm. or not, uh, because some people think that 
The word cancer should only be reserved for disease that can invade into other areas of the body. And so this is sort of in that intermediate zone between being completely benign and being an invasive cancer. Well, what if it's ductal and it goes into, for instance, the, inf- I don't know, it, and it does spread, then it's not DCIS? Correct. Okay. Yes, if it can spread outside the milk ducts, invade into the surrounding breast tissue, or invade into lymph nodes, lymph nodes. then that is what defines invasive breast cancer. Yeah, and by definition, cancer means has the ability to spread or metastasize. At least back when I was in medical school, that's the way we defined it. So it tells us most of these women, uh, most of these cases are picked up on a mammogram. What do they look like on a mammogram? Most of the time, how this shows up on a mammogram is with little tiny calcium deposits or what we call calcifications. And um, when they occur in certain patterns or clusters, that's what raises concern. Not all calcifications are suspicious, but based on their appearance and pattern, that is what generates concern and then potentially a recommendation for a biopsy. So most of these women don't have symptoms, but some do. And if they do have symptoms, what are they? So it's only a small minority of women with DCS who present with symptoms, but it can be uh, a palpable mass. It can be some scaling or redness on the nipple, and those would be the two most common. Also, it would be possible to have some discharge from the nipple, which might be clear-colored fluid or bloody fluid. What about the risk factors? Are they similar for DCIS as the as uh Uh, for regular cancer? They are. So the same factors that put women at risk for invasive cancer would put women at risk for DCIS. And that is, you know, increasing age, a family history of breast cancer, um, having early menarche or start of menstrual periods or late menopause, having a longer period of estrogen exposure, um, taking oral um, estrogens and progestins. So those are the, the same typical risk factors. And if you see this abnormality on on mammogram and it looks suspicious, how do you determine for sure what it is? So we have to get a a piece of that tissue and look at it under the microscope, and that's what's called a biopsy, obtaining a piece of tissue for evaluation. Usually in the modern era, that's now done with a needle instead of going to surgery to get that tissue. So a needle biopsy and... um, If it's visible on a mammogram, then that is usually what is called a stereotactic needle biopsy, meaning that they use the mammograms to locate the calcifications and place the needle at the correct spot. What I haven't understood is if you have DCIS, that means it stays inside the milk duct. So if you could, if you can remove that, it would make sense that you wouldn't need to have chemotherapy in the follow-up treatments, but that's not how patients are treated, correct? So the, the, the standby, uh, or I should say the standard treatment for DCS is to excise it. Uh, you know, years ago, that was a mastectomy for everyone. Now we know that we can do less aggressive approaches. Uh, certainly lumpectomy with radiation is a solid approach. Uh, but some women may not need the radiation. Maybe a lumpectomy would be enough. And there is increasing interest worldwide in trying to reduce the aggressiveness of treatment for DCIS because maybe we're over-treating women with DCIS. 
And uh, so the, the current uh, tr- clinical trials and approaches are looking at how can we reduce the treatment, find women that potentially don't need to have surgery at all, or women, if their uh, DCS has estrogen receptors, may be able to just get an anti-estrogen medication. And there are also some trials looking at doing nothing for DCS and just watching it. And if it progresses or looks like it's growing, then we would treat it at that point. That's watchful waiting. That is watchful waiting. And some people call it, but some people call it now active surveillance, which means we're not doing nothing. We are keeping track of it and keeping an eye on it. I like that a lot better. That, that phrase is a lot better. Active surveillance. Yeah. Yeah. But doesn't what, treatment you choose, even if it's active surveillance. Doesn't that depend on what the biopsy shows? It does, and that's an important fact, which is that uh, the characteristics of the DCIS matter in terms of what treatment is selected, as well as whether or not women would potentially be eligible for one of these clinical trials doing something less aggressive. And that has a lot to do with two things. One, which is the size or the area of the DCS that we see in the breast. Is it a tiny spot or is this an extensive process? And that impacts the choices. Also, what is the grade of the DCS? How abnormal do these cells really look? The more abnormal they are, they're called higher grade DCIS. And looking at doing less aggressive treatments tends to be for the women who have low grade DCIS, and smaller areas of DCIS. And would that also apply to postmenopausal women as opposed to younger women? Does These that make trials a generally are um, looking at women who are postmenopausal because in those women, almost all the time, the DCIS has estrogen receptors, and giving them an anti-estrogen medication would potentially treat the DCIS. Um, so you speak with the pathologist before you determine exactly what treatment they should have, correct? Right. Uh, and sometimes, can you convince some women that the pathologist says this barely looks like cancer, let's just watch it? Well, right now, we wouldn't generally do that outside of a clinical trial. We would say if we're, you know, the standard is to surgically excise the DCIS. If we're thinking of watching it, that would be reserved for a clinical trial or for potentially a patient who's not well enough to undergo an operation. All right. And another question regarding the biopsy. This is a needle biopsy. How can you always be sure that that's totally representative of the lesion? Are the lesions always homogeneous so that if you get a piece of it, you know that the whole thing is that, or could you be missing a higher grade area and therefore suggest the wrong treatment? Usually the grade is fairly consistent and we get multiple pieces of the tissue, even with a needle biopsy. Uh, we want to know that we have enough of a sample that it has evaluated, uh, you know, the majority of what we're looking at on the mammogram. All right, ductal carcinoma in situ. It's considered the earliest form of breast cancer. There are multiple treatment options depending on the aggressiveness of the lesion and the size and a little bit with regard to whether the woman woman is pre- or postmenopausal. And interestingly, clinical trials are studying new strategies for managing DCIS, such as close monitoring rather than surgery following diagnosis. All right, thanks to Mayo Clinic breast surgeon, Dr. Amy Dagnum. Thanks for being here. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, tips for eating smart during the holidays. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. The holidays. You know, for most people, it's a joyful time of year. But, you know, if you're like most of us, it's easy to eat a little too much. Just a little. And you know what that means? You put on a pound or two or three that isn't easy to get rid of. And if that happens every year... It's cumulative. It adds up. Sure. Well, we've got a plan that's a P-L-A-N that well, can I, help. I hope so. Joining us in studio is Mayo Clinic registered dietitian, Ms. Kate Zaratsky. Welcome back to the program, Kate. Thanks for having me. Did Kate. you invent this plan? Well, I can't take absolute credit for it. It was myself and a few colleagues. All right. Very good. Really, but it came out from it, Mayo Clinic. It is. You and a your Mayo, buddies. It is a Mayo Clinic plan. plan. Yes. Is it really? <laughs> you know, every year we hear these stories about people gaining 5 and 10 pounds over the holidays. That doesn't really happen, does it? That's a bit exaggerated. Probably people are putting on a few pounds, maybe two or three. The concern is by the time we get to February, there's still one remaining pound. <laughs> and that's the pound that kind of sticks with us the rest of the year. So over the course of time, the concern is that people might have a a gradual cumulative weight gain. Well, that's why we wanted to have this conversation now instead of February. Mm -hmm. So we've got the plan. So tell us about it. Sure. So the plan is an acronym. So the P stands for think about what's on your plate. The L stands for look for ways to lighten things up. A is a reminder to take some time to appreciate the season and what it brings. And N is just a reminder to think about how your nutrition and the food you eat kind of fit in day to day. I love that nutrition is at the end when it comes to the holidays. (laughs) Uh, So plate, a small plate better? Take the smaller one. (laughs) And then try to pick the fruit and veggie options as opposed to what else is there? Sure. And if you have a buffet option, even surveying the buffet before you 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 know walk up and start dishing yourself up all the different options because that in itself is a lot of temptation but choosing fruits and vegetables or looking for those options can really help in terms of helping control your hunger and your fullness and because fruits and vegetables are generally lower calorie foods as well it's going to help with the overall calorie intake while you're at that holiday event what about before you even get to the buffet and there's appetizers everywhere? Does a dietitian enjoy appetizers or do you just say, no appetizers, I'll just wait until we get to the meal? What do you do? If you have any chance to know what you're walking into, uh, that's mm-hmm. helpful. You know, just even that planning ahead is, is going to help you walk into the situation feeling a little more confident with what you want to do once you get there. If you don't know, then you might you just choose wisely. And again, when you look at the appetizers, ask what they are or look for the ones that are uh, containing fruits or vegetables, because chances are then overall they're going to be a little lower. All right, so we got the P, the plate size. Um, the how about L? How do we lighten up? So if uh, if you have an opportunity, if you're part, if you're the one making the food, you can look for recipes that allow for say lower calorie ingredients or are an alternative recipe to maybe a holiday favorite that is lighter in calories. Uh, another option you might consider is just lightening up your portion size. If you're dishing yourself up, you have a better control of how much. But be aware that if there's a large scoop or you're dishing from a large container, that you're likely to dish up more food. And so just be aware of how much you're putting on your plate because if you control the portion size up front, you're likely going to eat less than by the end of the party. How do beverages fit into the lighten up part? 
I think being aware that beverages have calories. I think we sometimes just don't think about that. We just have a drink. And those are calories forgotten. And so if, if you're enjoying, say, alcoholic beverages or beverages that are maybe a little more rich or sugary, they're going to have a significant amount of calories and those calories can add up. So you might consider having, having one and then drinking some water or having a lower, bev- a lower calorie beverage option. Wine and then wash it down with water. I guess <laughs> what you're saying. All right. A, appreciate. So when you thinking about the holidays, the holidays, food is important. And as a dietitian, I fully recognize that. But there's other parts of the holidays that are fun and that we look forward to. And so I think it's sometimes important to include that in the appreciation of the overall holiday. So you have your holiday meal, but you probably have other holiday traditions that are, you know, just as much a part of that holiday. So take some time to enjoy those or make traditions that allow you to, you know, go outside for a family walk or go sledding or do those fun things. But from a dietary standpoint, when you think about appreciating your food, it's really thinking about the, maybe the time and that went into making the food, maybe the family traditions behind the food, slowing down and really reflecting on that, but then reflecting on the taste, the texture, the smell, the sight of the food, and really kind of taking that in instead of just diving right in. Yeah, because and I don't know about at your house, Tom, but sometimes the holidays can be a little stressful. Oh no! And no, if no, you no. if you use food to help deal with the stress, you can see the downward slide that you're going to have really fast. And so, not doing mindless eating because you're stressed out that makes great sense. Right, and and you think about over the holiday time because food is part of our holiday traditions. Food shows up in places that maybe you don't even <laughs> expect. And so it might be coming into work, into break rooms, um, coming up onto your doorstep, and all well meant, but the idea of how you choose to partake in that. So it might be, is it an absolute favorite? Is it made once a year? Or maybe it's not one of your favorites and you can bypass it. And it's, it's, I think if you slow down, you have the opportunity to have that thought I got it. Now, if you get stressed out, you just go have a glass of water. (laughs) Perfect. Does that work? All right. How about the N? The N, so nutrition. So you think about just the overall balance of your nutrition and how it fits in your lifestyle. So over the course of the holiday time, you know, what are some strategies you can use with your nutrition? Is it having half of your meal or your plate be more fruits and vegetables? Is it that you're using uh, different recipes or maybe you're invited to a party so you bring your own, you, you bring a dish to pass so you know that there's something at the party that you that you feel really comfortable eating. Um, maybe it's the balance in your lifestyle where you think about the stress and you think about, okay, so um, if I'm if I'm feeling particularly stressed, instead of going after the holiday cookies, maybe I'll go for that, I'll go for a walk or I'll do something else that I enjoy. So just finding out how your nutrition kind of fits into your overall lifestyle and, and the health habits you're looking for. Water instead of alcohol and no mindless munching. <laughs> what fun is that? Right. It I mean, sounds really. like a great time. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, most of us do gain a pound or two or three over the holidays, and that doesn't sound very dramatic, but it can certainly add up over the years. So this year, don't let it happen. Yeah. With just a few strategies, you can avoid holiday weight gain while still enjoying friends, family, and the holiday feast. Perfect. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic dietitian, Kate Zeratsky. Thank you, Kate. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. 
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.